DW Deutsche Welle Pulse Hello and welcome to Pulse. I'm Jesse Wingard in Bonn, Germany. We have lots to cram into the show, so let's not waste any time. We look at fighting extremism in Ghana with a novel campaign drive, hit the training track with some of Kenya's top athletes of the future, and we can finally let you in on a little secret. So stay tuned to find out. All that and more coming up on this jam-packed edition of Pulse. The hills of the North Rift Valley in western Kenya provide a pool of athletic talent. There, young people don't want to become teachers, lawyers or doctors. They want to become professional runners. Eva de Vries spent a few days at a training camp where many Kenyan world champions hone their skills. St Patrick's Athletics Youth Program in Eton. She met with the world champions of the future and found out the secret of this magical place. We are in Iten, 2,400 metres above sea level, also called the home of champions, after the many runners that come from this hilly, high-altitude place in Kenya's Great Rift Valley. This beautiful area breathes running. Early in the morning, there are athletes everywhere, warming up their muscles for another day of training. Agents are on the lookout for talent. International running camps attract professional and amateur runners from all over the world, and in a small town, shops and cafes are named Atleti Fruits and Chips and Runners Point. Just outside town is the training camp where it all started for many Kenyan top athletes, such as 800-meter Olympic champion David Rudisha and 5,000-meter world champion Vivian Chariot, the St. Patrick's Athletics Youth Program. Good. Downwards, me relaxed. Very relaxed. Can achieve relax. At the oldest training camp for young athletes in Kenya, two of tomorrow's possible champions, both 17 years old, warm up. I speak with them in between training sessions. Like all other young runners, they were selected for the camp during primary and high school running competitions in the region. They tell me that when training, they think about all those great Kenyan athletes who made it to the top. If you are lucky, you watch Lakas running 3,000 meters and 5,000. From this camp, who ran 800 meters. Nancy Jepet from also from this camp who is running 1500 meters. Purity Jepchichir, a slim tall girl with sparkling bright eyes, realized she was good at running when she was 12. She wants to be like 1500 meter runner Viola Kibiwot, who comes from her village. Oh, my life was so bad because I had a big body which did not fit to, uh, to train. I like training because you get some fitness of, the, of your body. You are capable to do anything. For you have decided to train, you just go and train and train well so that you, you achieve your goal, so that you get something which you, you help yourself and, with, and our own family. It, it is something that I, have, yeah, that I have sticken in my mind that I want to be an athlete. Laban Kipkenboy, a muscly boy with a big smile, 
says his parents gave him his running talents. They were runners too. By hard training, you will be to be disciplined in training and train hard. You to, to avoid other things like like relationship with girls and other and taking, taking other drugs that that may harm your body. If I come as a sexual athlete, I will be improve my my brothers and sisters' education to pay them for school fees and also to give my my parents something to earn for farming. Maybe by 2019, I will be I will be like to I will be like to to represent my country in the world championship and also in the Olympic Games. Like Purity and Laban, most young athletes in this area come from poor rural backgrounds, and many see running as a way to improve their lives and that of their families. Running has developed the area visibly. Runners often return here to build schools and houses for their families. Good, good morning. Irish priest Colonel Dunnell is also known as the godfather of Kenyan running because of everything he has done to put athletics on the map in Kenya. He established this camp after leaving Ireland about 40 years ago. Despite the lack of an athletic background, he decided he would devote his time to train young Kenyan athletes. Besides running sessions, the program includes yoga, pilates, core strength, exercises and the importance of rest and recovery. Brother Colm wants to teach them a bigger lesson. They learn how to focus, how to concentrate, how to be a team member, how to fit in to society. In 1988, Brother Colm's first athlete became an Olympic champion. Many followed. It assured him that he must be doing something right as a coach. But despite his success coaching elite runners, he keeps doing what he loves most. Some coaches, maybe when they have a level of success, they are tempted to move up along the line and concentrate more on the professional side of it, dealing exclusively with elite athletes. But I always kept my interests in identifying and developing young athletes. That's my greatest thrill, working with young people and seeing young people coming at the age of 13 or 14 and progressing up along through trial and error, through setbacks and disappointments and seeing them becoming successful. Not just successful athletes, but successful people. Of course, I'm a little curious whether there are future world beaters in this group. Maybe even Purity or Laban stand a chance. But coaches are always very careful about predicting the future. And these athletes are still very young. And that is not even the priority for me in terms of the young people, RE10, that we produce more and more and more Olympic champions. But the idea that the young people who pass through my program will develop their talent and that that talent will help them to be successful in whatever career they take up and that it will have meaning for them and that they will look back on the days that they spent in my program and say, that's where I learned something, that's where I was uh, molded to, 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 to shape my life or played a part in my life to make me what and who I am today. While the sun is setting behind the tense rolling green hills, Purity, Laban and the other young runners are finishing off their last kilometers of the day, following the red dirt roads winding their way between maize fields and banana plantations. The exact same roads that top athletes Chariot and Rhodesia used to prepare for their athletic world domination. Despite Brother Colum's reluctance to predict future greatness, each and every one of these runners appeared to have the dedication to succeed. Their dreams appear to hover in the air as they head towards home under the setting sun. 
Even de Vries voor die W in item ken je. I don't think I can hold this little secret in anymore. In just a couple of weeks, Pulse is going to get a new name and an exciting new format. We'll be launching The 77%, a new show that will give Africans under 35 a platform to share their voices. With me to talk about this exciting new project is fellow co-host Crispin Wakudeu. Crispin, welcome to the studio. Thank you very much, Jessie. Crispin, who are The 77%? This is the largest population group in Africa at the moment. 77% of Africans are under the age of 35. And these are the people that are going to shape the continent. These are the people that are now studying. These are the people that are now looking for jobs. These are the people that are online most of the time. So the future actually belongs to these people and starting now. And that's where now the whole concept of 77% comes in. Now, you were speaking to some of the 77% uh, of Africans recently when you were in Ghana um, at a town hall debate for Deutsche Welle. We're not just seeing it in places like that at town hall debates, but also on social media. What are the concerns of young Africans today, this 77% that we're talking about? I think the main concern is just opportunities. They do search for opportunities and most of them have this feeling that where they are at the moment, there's like some some obstacles. They're not really free to pursue the opportunities that they, they would like to. And I remember when I was there moderating this event and one, one of the participants asked a question, a very interesting question, just how many of you in the, in the hall that is, it was about 300 people, how many of you here would like to go to the US, to Germany, to the UK? And guess what? Everybody raised their hands. And we had the Minister for Information there, and he was shocked. He was shocked that, you know, this, this could happen. So that, this just shows you that there is this hunger, there is this passion for people to want to move out, to search for better opportunities, for greener pastures. Uh, so, and, and it's not just that. I think they also feel constrained within their environments. Uh, if you are looking for a job, it's, it, you have a degree, it's, it's hard uh, because you must know someone, you know, because of the connections and all that. So they have this idea that it will get better when I'm out of this place. I think this is the main driving force that drives the 77% to want to leave, to want to um, go out uh, and, and, and make something out of their life. Those that remain in Africa, uh, are also doing a great job because there are people who are now coming up with new ideas, new innovations. You know, they are the future of Africa, let me put it that way. So the biggest concern, of course, is opportunities. At the same time, they do want, there are those that want to remain to, to be the driving force that changes the African continent. We're going to give them a platform to speak their minds, aren't we? With, As I mentioned, uh, we're launching the 77%. That's our new radio show from the first week of January. 
if somebody has a project or something they want to tell us about here at DW, they want it to feature on the 77%, they need to get in contact with us so they can head to DW Africa on Facebook. On Facebook. And leave us a message. And leave us a message. There is a big banner there screaming out, this is 77%, and you will see lots of content as well, you know, from our hosts, from those people who are working with the project. And just drop us a line. Just say, you know, I'm so-and-so in, I don't know, Malawi, in Zambia, in Ghana, in Nigeria. And this is happening in my town. I've been here. I was born here, I don't know, 28 years ago. And nothing has changed. We get money. Nothing is changing. Do something about it. And we'll do something about it. Absolutely. I'm really excited about this new project, the 77%. Crispin Wakodeo, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, let's give Africa a voice. Absolutely. Thank you, Jesse. group of students calling themselves Voices of Change have embarked on a campaign drive to counter religious extremism in Ghana. They use the slogan, speak out, stop them, and go from one event to the other and from school to school to speak to people. In their view, Ghana is particularly prone to extremists because unemployment rates are soaring. Estimates say that more than 1.2 million young Ghanaians are unemployed and willing to do anything for their survival, including joining radical groups for money. Maxwell Souk went to find out more. More than 70% of the residents of northern Ghana are Muslims. Out of these over 70% who are Muslims, we have almost all the dominant Islamic sects here in the northern region. Ahmad Mohammed Faisal is the faculty coordinator for combating violence and extremism at the University of Development Studies in Tamale. Belief in this area is often almost blind, mixed with ignorance. It can be a dangerous and heady combination, as Ahmad Faisal found when he conducted a study. Out of 2,000 people that we had interviewed in 2017, 78 of these people actually said that if anything is happening to their religious leader, they are willing to take up arms to defend his interest. And almost 90-something percent said, for whatever will go against their religion, Islam, and the sect that they belong to, they will stand up seriously against it. The research also found that Misconceptions were widespread, including the kinds of ideas peddled by so-called Islamic states. That if you die fighting for your religion, you will be rewarded in heaven. Because for them, if you die in the cause of defending your religion, you have over 70,000 women waiting for you in heaven. But of course... This we all know as a misconception or a misinterpretation of that Quranic verse. That is why Ahmadu Faisal helped set up the peer-to-peer challenge to encourage change. Voices of Change is an online campaign supported by Facebook and United States Department of Security. It has been set up to counter the recruitment of vulnerable youth to extremist groups. 
Dr. Kwesi Ening, a security analyst from the Kofi Annan International Peace Center, says Ghana is prone to extremists. Islamic State has issued a very specific statement focusing on this country and looking for opportunities to establish bases that is if they have not already done so. Zena Mohamed Nderi is a team leader in the peer-to-peer challenge on countering that extremism. This season we are using um, communicators against religious extremism as our campaign message with the slogan, Speak Up, Stop Them. So as the youth, we are trying to use social media platforms to counter religious extremism and create awareness about the vulnerability of the youth to join extremists or terrorist groups. An estimated 2.3 million illegal small arms are already circulating amongst civilians in Ghana, the media says. The breeding ground for radicalism is already there. The Islamic State pays between $1,200 and $2,000 every month with a view to incite the poor to join them. Many Ghanaians can't begin to hope to earn that much in other jobs. And this has made terrorism a great business, according to Dr. Al-Hussein Zakaria, the executive director of Kodiak, an Islamic organization focusing on religious dialogue in Tamale. Ghana is a target because of what we all know, youth unemployment. It is not that Muslims in Ghana are vulnerable. No, the whole Ghana, youth of Ghana, are vulnerable because of lack of jobs and they need to, to survive. And so if they are invited and they know they are going to make money there and they really make huge, huge, huge amount of money monthly being part of uh, terrorist uh, groups. So that is a challenge to all of us, Muslims and non-Muslims alike. Kampim Joshua Wedam is one of the students campaigning against extremism. He comes from a majority Christian village and sees that the dominance of the Christians there has led to resentment amongst the Muslims and a split in the community. I come from Navrongo, and my community in Navrongo, there is a dominant population of Christianity. However, there are some Muslims in it. And I've realized that when there's always a gathering, most of the time because of the dominance of the Christians, there's some kind of segregation and extremists against the Muslim religion. And this has created some kind of differences among them, and they don't work together as a community to develop. The authorities haven't released official figures about radicalism in Ghana as yet. Experts believe that, for now, there are only a few isolated cases. About 50 Ghanaians are thought to be fighting with the so-called Islamic State in Libya, but their reasons for fighting and whether they choose that path freely are as yet unknown. But like in many other poor countries, the conditions are there for easy recruitment. Voices of Change hopes that they can head young people off at the pass before they get tempted by the high wages and future glory offered by the terrorist groups. For DW, this is Maxwell Souk in Tamale, Northern Ghana. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Pulse. We hope you've enjoyed the show and we'd love to hear your feedback. Head to DW Africa on Facebook and leave us a message. I'm Jessie Wingard from all of us here at DW. Have a wonderful week ahead.